Join us as we wrap up our kingdom building series next on The Balanced Word. Wake up my soul. Wake up early in the day. Wake up my hand. And the instrument I play. Wake up my voice. Let the world hear me say. You are worshipped and exalted here today. Well, you picked a good day to join us as we conclude our kingdom building series today and next time. This is The Balanced Word, and Pastor Dave Rolf is our Bible teacher. We're online at thebalancedword.com. Today we visit 2 Samuel chapter 24. Let's make our way over there now for part one of Consequences. Great to be with you. It's kind of a big Sunday for me because we're finishing the book of 2 Samuel this morning. So if you've been with us all through these studies, um, you've probably, like me, really enjoyed digging into the life of David, the man after God's heart, the, the guy who was, Jesus bragged about being related to him. And so seeing all of his ups and downs has been really fascinating and instructive for me. But now we're coming now, if you read into uh, 1 Kings, the next book, you'll see the first few chapters wrapping up David's life basically as he's dying and Solomon's taking over. But 2 Samuel kind of wraps it up uh, First Chronicles, has, in a parallel passage, gives a little more details. But basically, here's David's life, and here's how it ends. Now, chapter 24 begins by saying, with the conjunction, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, which seems kind of out of place, and it probably is. Because if you were with us, the last couple weeks, what we saw was, you know, David was, you know, he wrote a long psalm that he uh, ended up talking about how good God was, which then flowed into David talking about, uh, you know, all of these great heroes of, of his army and people that nobody ever heard of that he wanted to give credit to. So it's kind of him listing these significant people. And all of that seems to have just been plugged in at the end of 2 Samuel, right before the last page, because in 1 Chronicles, those two chapters aren't there and the rest of this stuff is. So when he says again, he's connecting it back, not to chapter 23 or 22, but back to chapter 21, where if you remember that chapter, it's where David ultimately solidified his kingdom and his power. And a part of that was God was upset about what Saul had done to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites had had a treaty with Israel from the time of Joshua. But Saul, for some reason, had violated that treaty and gone in and slaughtered a bunch of Gibeonites. Well, now their kids were growing up, and now Gibeon could pose a real threat to the next generation, to Solomon. And so it was really important, and God let them know. In fact, he made it not rain so that they would figure out, okay, what's going on here? David made things right with the Gibeonites and made peace with them. He also eliminated the members who were left of Saul's family who would pose a threat for the throne. And so he does all of this. And then lastly, in that chapter, he goes and takes out Goliath's sons who were these giants because the Philistines were going to be a huge threat to Solomon if these guys were still around. Like your dad killed our dad and we're going to kill you. And so after all of that, the, the deal with the Gibeonites, you know, and, the, and ultimately as it comes down to this, 
taking care of the Philistines and taking care of the house of Saul, then it says that then God gave David peace over all of his enemies. It's like now the country is more secure than it had ever been in all of history, which was going to be perfect because the job of Solomon, the next king, was to establish a base of worship to build a temple. And it was also going to become a place that had connections with the rest of the world. Finally, the kingdom was going to become what God had always promised from way back in Abraham's day. So now when we come to chapter 24, something messes that up. And God gets mad about it. And so what it is, as you read through it, it seems like God is upset that David was going to number the people. Now, when they talk about numbering the people, they would line up every eligible soldier. It was kind of like their version of a draft, really. And they would go throughout the land and line every male up who's able to fight and now you know how big your army is. Now you know how powerful you are. Now you're prepared to do what you need to do. And so in this case, and there were plenty of times when God told them to number people because they were about to go to war. But at this point, they weren't about to go to war. At least they shouldn't have been. And yet he numbered the people anyway. Now it's kind of weird the way it's worded here in, in verse 1, that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David, a strange word and it really isn't there in the original it's like you know God was mad so David was moved against you know what God wanted go number Israel and Judah now the reason why we know this is a little unusual is that in first chronicles in the in the parallel passage over there in first chronicles 21 it actually says Satan told you know moved on David to make him number the people so you're like, well, what was it, God or Satan? Well, that passage, 1 Chronicles 21, is the only place where Satan's even mentioned with a personal name in other than in the book of Job in the whole Old Testament. So you go, okay, not sure exactly what's going on here. But if you take, now you could always go, well, it was, there's an error. What? It contradicts itself. The thing I love about obvious errors like this in the Bible is that the people who who the, the scribes who reproduced the Bible had so much respect for the text that whoever wrote it first would have known, you know, the next one would have known. So they certainly wouldn't have written down, well, Satan moved him to do it. Well, no, 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 you know, it says that God told him or vice versa. So therefore, the, the Holy Spirit inspired this and gave us this information. How could it be possible that God and the devil caused David to go number the people. And if you think about it, you have to get at the point of why he's numbering the people. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if God's upset with the people, something's wrong. So him numbering the people was going to result in a lot of pain and suffering. So God could be, and again, it's in the English, you don't get the full force of the fact that David was moved and God was somehow involved in it. The devil was somewhat involved in it as well. But God didn't make him do this. And the devil didn't make him do this. He was coming up with this on his own, most likely. And yet, you know, certainly the devil would have been like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah, do it, do it. Devil could be egging him on while God may be like, 
your wife, when you ask her, you know, I was thinking about going and doing this, and she goes, fine, go. I mean, that might be God at this point. He's like, you want to do it? Go for it and see what happens. So that's the best I can make sense of it. It certainly isn't the point of the passage. I just don't want to skip over it as if it doesn't exist, as most commentators do. And so, okay, number Israel. So in verse 2, the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, and this gives us some information too. He tells him, Joab was with him at the time, and he goes, you know what? Go number the people. It's like what you're saying to a general is go get the people either ready for war or let's see how powerful we really are. And so Joab was the guy you'd think would be in on it. Joab was a guy who didn't shy away from violence or, you know, he, he always cut corners. He's the guy that killed David's son Absalom who had rebelled against David after he was told not to. But look at his response is really fascinating. Um, he said, you know, go through all the tribes of Israel, Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab, in verse 3, said to the king, now, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. They were all against it. So Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king and they went to all these different cities and they lined up all the troops. It took them, according to verse 8, nine months and 20 days to count these people. And in verse 9, the sum of the number of the people that he reported to the king. In Israel, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. That's in the 10 northern tribes. And in Judah, there were another 500,000 which does give you the idea of Judah, why Judah was so prominent. They were bigger than all the other you know, tribes, certainly, and not, not collectively, but they were bigger than any other tribe. So he goes, here's the count. Now, another thing that I just have to tell you is that in Chronicles, in the same passage, the numbers given are significantly different. So I'm like, what happened? Now, whenever scribes are reproducing text, Numbers are some of the easiest things to mess up in Hebrew. But at any rate, the numbers aren't important. It's just they counted them. They did it specifically. It's also possible that more numbers came in later, and, and Chronicles gives the overall number where this is the number that they gave right when they came back to David. It doesn't matter. If you're going to worry about that all week, you know, find something more important. But you know, here it is. So what's happening these guys know this isn't right. Joab knows it. The generals know it, which tips us off. Like, why are you numbering the people? And Joab's response is really kind as he, as he tells them, hey, you know, I hope that there'll be a lot more people than this. And I pray that you'll have every victory possible. And you are great. You don't need to prove that you're great. You don't need numbers to show that you're great. We're good. We're fine. And here Joab, and partly it's personally because he's a general. I mean, David is retired from the military at this point. Because in the, the last time he tried to fight, he almost got himself killed. So they're like, here's your gold watch. Stay home at the next war. But all this had happened, and Joab's like, 
when you're lining them up, I know what comes next. These guys that, you know, they're going to be putting their life on the line for you. Do you really need that just for your ego? Do you really need that just so that you can feel better? Or are you thinking, maybe it's time we took Lebanon. Maybe it's time we took Syria. Maybe it's time we expanded further. And whatever it was, it's like, no, we have the land that God has given us. Is that ever enough? And so, you know, Joab called him on it, but he did it anyway. So like, okay, what comes next? You've numbered the people. Now what are you going to do? Well, David is an interesting guy because in verse 10, his heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. Isn't it interesting that God told him, fine, go do it. The devil told him, great idea. And now that he's done it within his own heart, he's like, I don't feel good about this. It lets you know that there was some motive that he had that was, that was less than what it should have been, certainly, but he doesn't go into detail. After he had numbered the people, so David went to the Lord in verse 10, and he said, I have sinned greatly. This was really wrong, what I did. I know it, what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, O Yahweh, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. God, I did a really stupid thing. Now, can we unwind that? The problem is, you've lined up, you know, all these soldiers, you know, a million and a half soldiers, and now they're like, okay, we're waiting for orders. You can't just say, never mind. You know, it's like, but he's like, God, can we just forget about that? A lot of times the things we do, even when you realize it was stupid, you still can't undo it. And so David, you know, prayed that to God, and he got up in the morning, and God didn't even talk to him. But God came to the prophet Gad in verse 11, who was David's seer. That is, Gad was kind of David's personal chaplain. And he, God said, go tell David, verse 12, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. He goes, there's a price you're going to pay. And you know what? I'm going to let you choose. Door number one door number two, or door number three. Door number one, you know, as he said to him, you can have seven years of famine. That's your choice. Now, for David personally, a famine's not going to affect him. And by the way, in First Chronicles passage, it says three years of famine, which is probably the accurate one because it's three, three, and three. And so um, probably Chronicles got it right, but who knows? If it's, if it's seven, it's also three. But they didn't pick it anyway, so whatever was behind door number one didn't really matter. But famine's not going to affect David, but it's going to affect the people. And he probably would feel like, oh, that's horrible, because I don't pay the price, the people pay the price. Behind door number two, do you want to run from your enemies for three months while they pursue you? That's a bad choice. But again, it doesn't affect David's life personally. He loses his soldiers because of it. He's going to be safe in Jerusalem. Three months, they can't take the whole nation. They'll probably just pick away at the fringes. Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Some epidemic that's going to come and take out a lot of people for just three days. And it's amazing how many people can die in three days, as you see here. So he said, consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So Gad's like, okay, door number one, door number two, door number three, David, what are you going to do? That's what God wants you to know. And he goes, you want to be in control? You want to make decisions? You want to be responsible? 
be responsible for this, pick one. And David actually doesn't really pick one. It turned out to be closest that the, that the third one was the one that happened. But David said to Gad, and this is kind of a cool response, I'm in great distress. My heart's broken. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hand of man. He goes, tell God that we'll do whatever he wants to do, but our one request is, I would rather have my consequence be from God than for him to use somebody else to dish out the consequences. And so it says, the Lord in verse 15 sent a plague among, upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, presumably for three days, from Dan to Beersheba during that time, 70,000 men of the people died. And so 70,000, that's a lot, although we know there are some sicknesses that kill that many people, especially in a land that had maybe 3 million Jews in it. But it was still devastating. But when they got to Jerusalem, probably worked their way down to the south. When they got to Jerusalem, he stretched out his hand over Jerusalem in verse 16 to destroy it. The Lord relented from the destruction. God goes, that's enough. That's okay. I don't want you to take out Jerusalem. Now you can, there are a lot of places in the Bible where it talks about God relenting, repenting, changing his mind. It says what it says. I'm just not going to make excuses for it or act like it doesn't mean anything. This is what it says. God's like, no, that's good. We're good. And so he said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Now Arauna had a threshing floor that was right there in Jerusalem. You're circling almost around David's palace. It's just to the side of his palace. And what this threshing floor was, was a flat area at the top of the hill there in Jerusalem. Now, as it turns out, and by the way, if you read the Chronicles passage, he's called um, Ornan instead of Arauna, but it's, there's something weird here because the name Arauna in this passage is spelled like four different ways in Hebrew. So he was probably called both names at any rate. But the land that was there, the threshing floor, you know, where the threshing floor is where you would bring the grain, smack it up, break it loose, toss it up in the air, and the good grain comes down and the other stuff blows away. So it was a place where there was a breeze. It was a place that was prominent. It was a place that we know as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you, you know, when you, if you ever go with us to Israel or if you've ever been there, you know that place is so prominent. It's like, whoa, there it is right there. Well, at this point, it's just a place where they thrashed wheat. But as it turns out, David's palace is just right down the hill from it. And here's this cool mountain. Now, according to the Jewish rabbis, this mountain, this hill, this place, this threshing floor, originally was the place where Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices way back in Genesis 4. It also is, is, the pla- is said to be the place where Abraham came to offer Isaac. It was then the place where Solomon would build the temple. And it's the place where, again, as Jesus returns, he's heading right up there. It's also the place where Jesus taught he cleansed it, and he was brought there in order to be you know, punished and, and ultimately hauled up the hill a little bit more on the mountains of Moriah in order to be killed, probably just 
just up uphill from this threshing floor. But so it's a prominent place. Um, it's the place where um, today there's the uh, the Dome of the Rock that's there. The Muslims believe that this is where you know Muhammad ended up ascending into heaven, and so it's an important place. So now God says, "This is where I am, and I have something for you to do." And so, as God was there. David spoke to the Lord. He saw the angel striking the people. And he said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. He said, this is on me. These people don't deserve this. And that's the heart of, of, a, of a godly man, for sure, who would rather take the suffering himself because he understands they're suffering partly because of him, partly because they maybe had been ambitious as well. But he cries out to God, and, and Gad came that day to David in verse 18 and said, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. He goes, God wants you to build an altar right there. You're listening to The Balanced Word with our pastor and teacher, Dave Rolfe. Today's message is part of our study in First and Second Samuel called Kingdom Building. Stay with us for more teaching from Pastor Dave in just a moment. These programs are available by podcast at thebalancedword.com. You can also call and request a CD copy at 949-362-7475. You might also want to request the entire Kingdom Building series. Again at 949-362-7475. We'd also like to offer you Pastor Dave's Through the Bible in a Year series on a USB thumb drive for a gift of $25 or more. Go Through the Bible in a Year with Pastor Dave by ordering this special series today. Again, call 949-362-7475 or order online at thebalancedword.com. Your gifts help to make these shows possible on stations like this one all across the nation. Thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. Donations can be made at thebalancedword.com. Have you had a chance to listen to Pastor Dave's one-minute messages? You can listen to those at thebalancedword.com and even join our mailing list, so you can have them delivered to you each day. You can watch them on Instagram or Facebook, too, by following CC Pacific Hills. Pastor Dave would love to have you join us at Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Our service times on Sunday morning are at 8, 9.45, and 11.30. Directions and more information about the church can be found online at ccpacifichills.org. You can watch our live stream there too, ccpacifichills.org. As we return to Pastor Dave, he draws some application from this final chapter in 2 Samuel. So from this last unusual chapter, what lessons do we get? That's always the question when we read the scriptures. One of the first things that I think you see going on here, because you have to get back to What's his whole deal with numbering the people? What's he trying to do? We saw three chapters ago that they had peace, that all of their enemies were basically gone and they were secure. What made him number the people? Was it to gloat? Was it to show off? Or is he just thinking, maybe we'll take some more land. We're on a roll here. Certainly the army's good at fighting. We've got good numbers. And Joab, how about let's just... For old time's sake, let's just go wipe out some other civilization. Let's expand. Let's take, you know, Asia Minor while we're at it. Let's go and take Syria. Let's go, let's go somewhere else. How does that happen? See, and here's the thing you have to think about. 
If you live without ambition, you'll never get anywhere. There are people who never get anywhere because they never have a sense of, hey, I could do more than I'm doing. I could do something else. Ambition is something that the scriptures make very clear, absolutely necessary for God's people to be ambitious. But there's a point where ambition turns into greed. There's a point where you lose your ability to draw margins and borders and say, you know what? We're in a good place right now. I think many of us deal with those kinds of issues because we, you know, we feel like, and maybe we feel like, oh man, I wish I had worked harder when I was younger, but now I've got to make up and catch up and I'm here and you never know what's going to happen with the economy. So I need a little more and a little more and a little more. And our entire economic system is built on people never getting satisfied. It's designed to make everybody feel like you need to do more. And so we get that ingrained into us. Now, there are some people who never do anything. That's a complete waste of a life. People without ambition, without a vision, the people perish. And that's certainly true. But even people who have godly ambition have to learn that, okay, there's a point. There's a place where what I want to do is everything that God has called me to do, but I don't want to just keep thinking that it means just more and more, bigger and better. We'll finish up our Kingdom Building series on the next Balanced Word with Dave Roth, a presentation of Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Wake up my soul. Wake up.